0: good morning i had the privilege of hanging out with jim a little bit last year uh, when i was in thailand Uh, i went through japan i missed jim there and then we were attending a conference together there so good to see you again jim and thanks for being with us we started a series last week on the gospel and uh the idea of last week was this idea of being safe and holy, and we talked about how it's easy to be just safe, it's easy to be just holy, but it's an altogether different story to try and be both safe and holy. We talked about how non-Christians do not often experience Christians as both safe and holy that if they are with people that they feel safe with, it's usually not Christians. And if they're with people that are holy, they don't usually feel safe. We talked about how our goal is to be both safe and holy. And uh, I said that the way we become safe and holy is by understanding that the only way to actually be both safe and holy is to be safe because you are truly holy. That when your holiness is man made and it's sustained by you and it's your own works, then you're easily threatened by everything and everyone around you. Therefore, they experience you as an unsafe person because you feel unsafe about your own fragile holiness. But that if you are holy, by God's grace, that you are cloaked with a garment from on high, then that garment, you don't have to worry about getting dirtied or messed up or torn or worn because it's not of you. And therefore, it allows you to be free and open. You can approach a so-called sinner without worry of defilement because it's your holiness that's contagious. That Jesus touched the leper and the leper became cleansed. Contrary to a Pharisee who feared the leper. Because if they, became, if they came close to a leper, they would become defiled and unclean. Now what I want to do starting uh, today and tom- uh, next week is to really dive into this idea of the gospel of grace. And so the title of today's talk is Grace and the Gospel. Grace is sort of an interesting word because nobody really knows what it means anymore. Uh, I'm reading this book called Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, The author's name is Daniel Kahneman, K-A-H-N-E-M-A-N. And he has a lot of, it's a sort of a research-based book. But there's a fun little quote in there, and it starts off with a question. I want you to answer it in your mind, but I'm going to keep reading on. How many animals of each kind did Moses take into the ark? This is called the Moses illusion. Moses, in fact, some of you may not realize why these snobby people are giggling. (laughs) Moses, in fact, took no animals into the ark. Noah did. The Moses illusion is readily explained by norm theory. The idea of animals going into the ark sets up a biblical context, and Moses is not abnormal in that context. You did not positively expect him, but the mention of his name is not surprising. It also helps that Moses and Noah have the same vowel sound and number of syllables, you unconsciously detect associative coherence between Moses and Ark and so quickly accept the question. Replace Moses with George W. Bush in this sentence, and you will have a poor political joke, but no illusion. And grace is a little bit like that. We have heard it so much associated with church. It falls under norm theory. What uh, what Daniel Kahneman calls the norm theory. It's become totally normalized. We sing that it's amazing. I don't know that any of us in here can remember the last time we were actually amazed by it. But do you know that grace is amazing? That it's surprising? That it's contrary to our human nature? that in fact, as we'll go into next week, we hate it with all of our fiber and being because it's threatening to us. Grace is not our best friend initially. We should all have an allergic reaction to grace, and yet we just ignore it. It's the pink elephant in the room that we've grown all accustomed to. We like the pink elephant it's our pet. It's our mascot. It's our friend. In fact, we've moved in with it, so now we're free to ignore it. And so when we're talking about God's grace, we have to sort of totally flip it on its end. We have to look at it all over again with fresh eyes. We don't know it, understand it, appreciate it, relate to it, experience it the way we really ought to. It actually is quite amazing. I've been thinking about this idea of grace and what it would mean for us uh, on a Sunday morning. And so I've started conversations with folks about worship service. That's not all works-based. You know, evangelicals and Christians, uh, we've sort of contemporized worship, and that's good. But it's sort of this very works-oriented worship service where we have to do all the work. If we want to have a great worship experience, we have to sing with all of our heart and might. If we want to have a spiritual experience, we have to pray fervently. That is, our worship service is just the sum total of the effort that we put in. And so I've been thinking about what would it be like to have a worship service that's bigger than us That we don't just do, but we actually enter into. And it does us. And so I've been thinking about what liturgy would look like in our church. And so we've been making plans to introduce uh, a special kind of prayer into our worship service. Where you don't have to do all the praying, but you enter into prayer. I started thinking about smells and incense. So you you, you enter into this space, and it greets you. You don't have to come at it. There's a lot to be said about grace, and there's lots of ways to apply it. But for me, for me, grace is probably the most meaningful piece of theology. You know, if there was like a spiritual fire, and you had to get out, and you could only grab one word with you as you, as you survive this fire, that for me, the word is grace. Uh, I have a personal story associated with it. I was, um, I was a junior in college, and my life had been flipped inside out and upside down, and I think it was by God, um, or Satan, it doesn't matter, God used it, so uh, it was a powerful, powerful year for me. But that was the year that grace became grace to me for the very first time in my life. I grew up in the church, I sang songs about grace, I heard sermons about grace, but it was never really grace to me. I studied the scriptures, um, and as I was studying the scriptures and reading about all these characters in the Bible, I came to the one conclusion that I was missing something in my relationship with God. And true to evangelical form, uh, my uh, conclusion was that I was missing love, that I did not love God enough. I saw all these saints in the scriptures who were physically torn apart, who were tortured, who were threatened and killed, whose villages were pillaged for the sake of their faith. And yet they remained faithful to God. And I thought my relationship with God isn't like that at all. I'm missing love. I do not love God enough. And then as I was reading the scriptures more, I came across this little verse that stopped me dead in my tracks. Okay, the verse is 1 John. You don't have to look it up. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. And this was a crazy verse. You have to understand that as a junior in college, I had been... Um, excuse me while I fiddle with this. <clears throat> by the way, I have twenty-two people on my sermon feedback team who give me feedback by Tuesday three p.m. every week, and one of the pieces of feedback was that I really should try using a, um, you know, this kind of countryman mic rather than a handheld mic. Um, and the comment was, they wanted to see both my hands flailing and not just one. <laughs> And so I am honoring this piece of feedback, and I am uh, using this, trying this thing, but it, it is annoying me right now. <laughs> As a junior in college, all the rage is love, okay? All my questions have to do with love, and the only acceptable answers have to, has to be about love. I... Was hungry and desperate and pining and waiting and wanting love, 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 and I came across this verse, and this is, to my knowledge, the only place in the Bible that explicitly, plainly defines for us what love is. Maybe you didn't know that. First John chapter four verse ten, it begins like this: "This." is love it's going to tell us what love is what all the songs we've been singing for thousands of years are actually about what all the movies we've seen what all the books what all the rage is about right here the bible is going to define it for us this is love ready for the definition of love not that we love god Okay. As far as you and I, as far as human beings are concerned, the first part of the definition of love is that we know nothing about love. Compared to whatever love is, we're not reading that part yet, whatever love is, whatever you and I think, we feel, we do, we have, we want, that, my friends, is not love. Relative. To love. We feel things. We want things. We do things. We claim things. But it's not love compared to what love is. And so you want to know what love is? You have to know first what love is not. It's not what you and I have. This is love. Not that we love God. But that he loved us. What love is, is what God has for us. A simple way to remember this is that love flows down. I have four daughters, and they are very expensive. This Halloween, by the way, we spent the sum total of $14 on Halloween costumes, including a costume for Susie. So we did really well. But I never think about actually what we're spending on the kids. My first question is, well, is it good for them? Do they need it? Can we fit it in our schedule? Money is the last thought on my mind. Not so when it comes to loving my parents. Now, my parents love me far more than my kids love me. My parents have spent more on me and given more to me than my kids probably ever will. And yet, with, when it comes to loving my parents, I'm very calculating. I'm strategic. I'm political. I'm doing image management. I have a marketing consultant to make sure they feel loved. They think they are loved. But it's less than probably what I actually do or feel. Not so with my kids. Because love has a slope. There's a gravitational pull on love and it flows downward. Things like respect and worship and fear and trust... These things naturally rise upwards. But love, my friends, flows down. This is love. Not that we love God. But that He loved us. And the verse goes on to say, And gave His Son to us as a propitiation for our sins. That's a different sermon. The love that you and I long for is not the love that you and I have to give. We don't get it from each other. We cannot and we never, ever will because love flows down. And so I was stopped dead in my tracks when I came to this verse because here I was thinking, I do not love God enough. And here is the scriptures telling me Whatever you think you're missing, it's not your love for God. What I came to realize that junior year, that very dark, dark year for me, was that I was in fact missing love. But what I was missing was not my love for God, but God's love for me. First, the love of God is undeserved and unconditional. The love of God is undeserved and unconditional. My uh, great love uh, in my life uh, came in the year 2003. And um, that's the year that my first daughter was born. My first child was born. And she was born on March 1st, 2003. 2003. And, uh, you know, I don't know why parents go, first-time parents go crazy. It's really easy to be a first-time parent, I think, especially when they're first born. They're little different than a pet rock. (laughs) You know, you feed them, and then you put them down here, and they stay there. They're completely immobile. You pick them up, put them down over here, and they stay over here. And uh, so it was It was pretty easy, you know, we changed their diapers, we fed her, and then we put her there. It was uh, at that fateful afternoon, it happened to be um, um, uh, uh, in the middle of, you know, our queen-size bed. And she was taking a nap, we put her down there, and my wife and I were upstairs in a different part of the house. And um, we were in conversation, and then all of a sudden we heard a big thud, and my father-slash-spider instincts kicked in, and I knew exactly what happened. You guys gasped. You knew exactly what happened. This little pet rock of ours had learned to flip over for the first time in her life, and she had rolled over and off the bed and onto the hardwood floor. And I remember I was upstairs, mid-conversation, I heard this, and I started running, bolting down the stairs. And I remember praying a prayer, and I prayed, God, if you are real, if you exist, if you are alive, if you care about me at all, then do what only you can do, and transfer all of the damage and pain from Emmy's body onto me, Right now. I remember praying that in Jesus' name. But that was just a crazy first-time parent, you know, talking. I went down there, and she was fine. Um, Kids are incredibly resilient. But the moral of the story is, I wanted to do everything possible to take her pain away. And if, if you have been a parent or you are a parent, you understand this. You love your children. Love flows down. Um, uh, Emmy actually wasn't my first love, however. My first love belonged to Susie. And uh, this is the first of many, many stories you're going to hear about Susie. But the long and short of it is that uh, she was the first love of my life, um, I pursued her for four years. She was a freshman at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And uh, she says she met me at a square dance, but I don't remember her. And, uh, but I remember I was the all-knowing sophomore, and uh, I started kind of keeping an eye on her first semester, and by second semester, I was gone. And at the end of that semester, I met her mom who came up to visit and I liked her mom so much, I prayed, God, I want to marry her daughter. And so I was just just gone for Susie. I was whipped, as they say. And, uh, um, you know, I really do love her a lot. She is a big part of my life. And uh, I think I would do anything for her. And, you know, I would, you know, die for her. I think I can say that. And loving her, uh, Scripture says, is like loving myself. And I feel that. I feel the reality of that after 15 years of being married. Scriptures tell us that we are mysteriously one. And I feel that connection. But I'll be honest with you. Even though I would die for Susie, and I do on a daily basis, because if marriage isn't death, what is it? I would die for Susie, but again, to be honest, I could never let Emmy die for Susie. See, I myself can bear pain, but I can't bear the thought of Emmy in pain. I can't do it. I love Susie as I love myself, but I love Emmy more than I love myself. This is the beauty of verse 8. I want you to look at verse 8 again in the passage that Jim read for us. Okay, I'm going to read it again. It says this, But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, God died for us. Is that what it says? No, it doesn't say that. Let me read it again. But Christ demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Does it say that? No, it doesn't say that either. Okay, let me actually read you what it says. It says this. But God, the Father, demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God the Father, wanting to demonstrate His own love for us, sent not just Himself, but His Son to die for us. God the Father, wanting to demonstrate His own love for us, sent His Son, Jesus, the Christ, to die for us. What do you make of that? There is no greater love than what God did by sending His Son to die for us. And this is the whole point that Paul is trying to make. There is no greater demonstration of love than this. That God, the Father, would send not just himself, but his son to die for us. God sent his son to die for us. The love of God the Father is captured perfectly and totally in Jesus Christ, his son, who died for us, who was given to us as a propitiation or a substitution. For our sins. There is no other definition of love than this. This is what love is. God the Father giving His Son to us, for us. This is love. No greater love than this. Now, this love has a context. What is the context? There are four key words that contextualize this love and change, change the reality of this love for you and I in our own experience of this love. This context is key. Okay, As we learned in seminary, context is king, And this is the context. The four key words that you should underline are helpless, ungodly, Sinners and enemies. And this is key and this is context and king because this is the whole logic of Paul. This is what Paul is saying here in this text. If while we were enemies, if while we were ungodly, if while we were helpless, if while we were in this state... If God loved us then, if God gave us his son then, he goes on to argue, how much more now does he love us? If God loved us that much while we were shaking our fist at God, murdering each other, lying to each other, cheating each other, being unjust to each other. When we were lost in our sins, God loved us and gave us the greatest gift that he could ever give to anyone and anything. Then, how much more does he love us now? How much more now? See, you and I, we're used to asking an illogical question. And the illogical question is, God, how much do you love me? Or we ask of each other, how much do you love me? I remember dating. Dating was the most Awkward season in my life. Getting asked questions like, how much do you love me? Would you love me if I lost a hand? Would you love me if I was paralyzed from the waist down? Would you love me if I was paralyzed from the neck down? Would you love me if I was in a fire? Silly questions. How much is the wrong question? It's not how much, it's when. When do you love me? If God loved us then, then, now that we are reconciled, how much more now? This is the love of God in Christ that God the Father gave to us his Son then. While we were enemies, while we were helpless, while we were sinners, while we were ungodly. God loved us then. How much more, now that we have been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? What do you call it? What do you call it? When the greatest form, expression, demonstration, definition of love is given to us. When we did not deserve it, earn it, work for it, ask for it at all. When we were completely, absolutely unworthy and undeserving. What do we call it? And so we have a new word, and the word is grace. Would you bow your heads with me? God, there are a million applications and implications to the reality of your love for us that flows down to us. That you love us and that you loved us then. How much more now? God, it is my belief that this love of God in Christ as wonderful and as amazing it is, as it is, it's just completely foreign to us. We don't know how to think about it. We don't know how to apply it. We don't know how to relate to it. And so I, I pray, God, as pastor to church, I pray for this church that this week we would wrestle with this idea of grace. That it would uh, torment our spirits and our souls and our hearts. That we would not be at rest Thinking about this. Holy Spirit, visit us in a special way this week. And let this idea uh, take possession of our minds this week. Grace, undeserved, unconditional. Grace, the love of God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I pray that for our church this week in Jesus' name. Amen.